Amen. And that's where we'll turn, first of all, is to Revelation 22. Revelation 22, if you'd turn there, we, uh, we just dealt with one verse last week, and um, we'll only deal with one verse tonight, too, because we're going to be in Ezekiel. Okay, so uh, we're making really good progress here. <laughs> Now we'll, now, we'll be going a lot faster soon. And what I hope to do in this series is to be able to, after we finish Revelation, which is coming up very soon, um, I hope that we'll be able to take some key eschatological passages, um, passages of, of visions, passages that talk about the future, and uh, try to deal with them. I think many times, uh, in my opinion, and the opinion of many, uh, they are often misunderstood. Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. You might remember, that's about as far as we went last week. We talked about the water of life and uh, how many times the Bible talks about the water of life and such. Well, going on a little further, brightest crystal flowing from the throne room of God and of the Lamb. That's where we'll pick up tonight. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, and we'll be talking about that, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And that's as far as we'll get tonight, uh, Lord willing. But I'll just read the next few verses so we see that we're in the eternal state. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And it's kind of interesting, but in eschatology, of the study of last things, we're always talking about the mark of the beast. Uh, and uh, on the forehead or on the hand, you hear that just all the time. But the truth of the matter is, count it up if you think I'm wrong. Um, more often, it talks about the mark of God on his own. Wow. Yep, so there you go. So anyway, they'll see his face, his name will be on their foreheads, and of course that's figuratively, and night will be no more, they will need no light of lamp for the sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they'll reign forever and ever. One more thing, just talking about that, as we did when we went through the book of Revelation, um, the mark on the forehead is obviously figurative, and uh, I would argue the same thing with the mark of the beast. It's not a computer chip, it's not... Um, uh, one of those new, I don't know what those new things are called that you can scan on your phone and then it pops something. It's not that. It's nothing like that. You know, it, it's just a, the clear demarcation between the people of God and the people that are not of God. Okay, so the first thing we find here in Revelation 22 is the source of the river. The source of the river. Turn to Zechariah 14. We're going to see the source of the river, and Zechariah is a, a really a good place to turn to for that. It's near, right near the end of the Old Testament. Zechariah is a book full of visions. Uh, very, it really is a companion book to the book of Revelation because it's a, an apocalyptic book itself. So Zechariah chapter 14, verse 8 and 9. Now the source of the river is flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb. And we see this in the Old Testament too, and, and uh, also in the New. In Revelation chapters 4 and 5, the throne of God 
and of the lamb is a predominant theme. It's so predominant, in fact, that 14 times in just two chapters, chapters four and five, 14 times the throne of God is mentioned. And in the book of Revelation, 38 times. And I didn't parse them out, but they almost always are the throne of God. But a, a few times I know it's the throne of Satan and some other things too, so, you know. But, so I didn't count them out to find out what it was which, but 38 times in the book of Revelation. Now, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 8 and 9. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem. So we're really talking about the same thing here, the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now here, Zechariah calls it Jerusalem. Half of them to the Eastern Sea, the Dead Sea, which is that's what the Eastern Sea is, and half of them to the Western Sea, which is the Mediterranean Sea, it shall continue in summer and in winter. And so that's what we see taking place there. Uh, this river is also seen in Isaiah. We're actually saying as a river glorious. Uh, that is really part of the same theme of what we're talking about tonight, and we'll explain why in just a few moments here. So on that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the Eastern Sea, half of them to the Western Sea, and it shall continue in summer and in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. Now, I believe we've gone all the way uh, to the eternal state at that point, although he is the king of all the earth now, and um, he certainly is. But um, when we're talking about Old Testament uh, visions and prophecy, uh, we need to be very discerning and we need to use the New Testament to help us understand the Old. Sometimes the New Testament uh, picks up on the theme and elaborates on it, and it makes sense. But uh, really, if we all, all we had was the Old Testament, then it would be very easy to, to fall into the idea that the disciples had, for instance, and the Jews themselves had, that they one day would physically rule the earth with a king sitting on their physical throne in Jerusalem, you certainly hear this type of, or you see this type of language uh, in the Old Testament. Where in the New Testament, these things are now explained to us in more spiritual ways instead of the Old Testament more physical ways. And so uh, it's easy to see how that would happen. Jerusalem, the city of peace, and uh, the reason we know that it's the city of peace, Melchizedek came from Salem, the city of peace. So that's what we're talking about here. So uh, we come to Revelation, we realize Jerusalem is being spoken about, not the city that's currently in the Middle East as such, but the new Jerusalem. And if you've been here in the series, we spent chapter 21 talking about the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven, the bride of Christ, of the city, of the new earth. Okay. I'm going to use a different term for new heaven and new earth because that takes a long time to say. I call it the new cosmos. Can you allow that to happen? Yep. Let's call it the new cosmos. Okay. Um, you know, um, there's a lot we can say about that. And um, it's not to say Jerusalem and Israel are not important in this new covenant age. I think there is significance to them. And when we get to Romans 10 and 11, I hope that we'll be able to show the significance of the Jewish people to, to this day. Okay. But just as a sidelight, 
Um, something really irks me that I've heard many times, and, and again, I'm not trying to be political when I say this, but uh, there, there's a, a chant that's being uh, bandied about. It even made its way into the halls of Congress uh, by one of the Congress ladies. And um, I sent out a map, a real simple map from the BBC, just to show you where Israel started in 1947 and uh, the, the various wars that took place. Really nice visuals, so easy to see. And you can see the land as it grows and the, the different disputed areas like that. But the chant that is really troubling is from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. And if you look at the river and then you look at the sea, guess what's right in the middle? Israel. <laughs> That's right, right in the middle. And, um, you know, they said, well, no, we're not, we're not chanting for the eradication of Israel. That's what the congresswoman says. Go over in Palestine. They say, yeah. We, our maps don't even show Israel as existing. It's just the facts of the matter, you know. So she keeps trying to say that it clear, doesn't mean clearly what it does mean and does not even apologize for the chant. So from the river to the sea, you know, well, that's where Israel is. Okay, now back to the issue at hand. Go to Ezekiel chapter 47. This is where we'll spend most of our time tonight on this vision that Ezekiel has in Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel is full of visions. Now, do understand, uh, he, when he's talking about these visions, these are not realities. These are symbolic things that he sees taking place. In fact, the very temple, now I'm not gonna deal with it tonight, but the very temple that Ezekiel talks about is not a temple that's ever going to be built. It has nothing to do with the temple that was built um, uh, by the Jews as they returned from Babylon. It has nothing to do with that expanded temple that, that uh, was built upon by Herod and, and by um, uh, the, the rulers there, Herod the Great and the other rulers. Uh, really, that's not what it's about. And we'll try to have a lesson, to, uh, a message to show that to be the case. And then you got the Valley of Dry Bones in, in uh, 38 and 39. I believe we'll have a, a message dealing with that vision too. But uh, here's a vision in chapter 47 that's akin to the temple vision. Okay, so we, we spend all this time with this massive temple, and believe me, it's massive when you, when you work it all out. In fact, um, it, it could not be held in Jerusalem. The, the entire temple would not only engulf all of Jerusalem, it would engulf the outer areas too. Okay, but that's not the point. That's not what he's trying to say. Uh, he's trying to talk about, in Old Testament language, some New Testament truths. Okay, so Ezekiel 47, verses 1 through 12. And we'll just make comments as we go. In verse number 1, he says, Then he, that's the angel, brought me back to the door, back to the door of the temple. Okay, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple, Toward the east, for the temple faced east, the water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Okay, so the point is where it's the source of the water. 
Well, it's flowing here from God, from his temple in Jerusalem. And the new earth is pictured uh, as his throne, as we saw from Revelation 4 and 5. So in the new cosmos, um, you know, in a way, things are happening in a way that we can't comprehend. So it's given to us in new covenant language, but we'll understand it so much better when we're actually there and fully understand it, and it'll make all the sense in the world in those days. But we have in Ezekiel, though, is a progression. We're going to see a progression in a moment. Uh, from the new covenant age to the eternal state, the gospel starts in Jerusalem and spreads over all the earth. And finally, the end comes when the new covenant church, including all the saints of all the ages, become the new earth. That's where we're going. That's what this river is going to be about. Then he brought me out by the way of the north gate and led me around to the outside, to the outer gate that faces towards the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Okay, so there's a little trickle. Not much, just a little, you know. Um, think of this river as the gospel in the new covenant. The living waters that we talked about last week given to us by Christ. And finally, in the eternal state, It'd be flowing from the very throne of God for all eternity, figuratively saying. But at first it was just a trickle, a small band of believers. But then read what it says. Verse 3, going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, uh, the angel, the guide, the man, measured a thousand cubits and led me through the water. It was ankle deep. The trickle is now ankle deep. Okay. Now, this is where modern translations need to be cautious here. There's significance to the word thousand. A good translation should say thousand. Um, I looked it up in a few, and um, one of the translations that I looked at said 1,750 feet. But that doesn't mean anything. 1,750 feet doesn't mean anything. Okay, we're talking about cubits. Okay, true. A cubit is larger than a foot in our English measurement. So they're taking it very literally, trying to say, okay, how big would this actually be? But they're missing the significance because 1,000 is important. It's a very important number uh, in, in uh, eschatology. It's a very important number in the book of Revelation. It becomes an important number here. Uh, 10 uh, is the idea of completeness and, um, and the finishing and all of these sorts of things that God does, what's a thousand? It's 10 times 10 times 10. And so it's a, it's a triple blessing of completeness. And so it's continual growing of the people of God, even as they're martyred. Kill the people of God and what happens? You, you send them to heaven. You go to heaven and now heaven grows and it's bigger than it was. You know, and uh, the seed of the the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Go ahead and, and uh, kill a martyr, and three, four, five, ten more will spring up in their place. That's the way it's always been in history. And so we see growth, the growth of the kingdom. And so you can't stamp out the kingdom. You can try to stamp it out uh, by death, but even that doesn't work. And, it, and the church on earth, we're talking about too, this river, the church on earth, through its ups and downs, does progress and grows. You know, the ever-expanding kingdom. 
from a trickle to a mighty river. Let's read that. And so he said to me, verse 6, Son of man, have you seen this? And he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on one side and the other. Now I really want you to note that. We're going to be coming back to it. But that becomes important as we go back to the book of Revelation. So I went back and saw on the river very many trees on one side and on the other. And it's going to be important when we get to verse 12 here, too, in just a moment. And, um, you know, remember there was one tree of life in the Garden of Eden. Okay. But the principle of multiplication is being used here, pictured here. Multiple blessings. And so he said to me, and now let me just say one more thing. We're going to have a hard time distinguishing in this Old Testament prophecy when we've come from the New Covenant age to the final glory. Visions don't work that way. They, they don't just lay everything out so that you can absolutely understand them. Sometimes they do. There's a couple of visions in Daniel we'll look at that are very, very exacting. You know, it's quite amazing. Uh, there's another vision in Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, that I think is very, very misunderstood. Okay, and people think they understand it. And so, you know, but of course, there are scholars on all sides and camps here. Anyway, as we continue on, just keep this idea in mind, the many, many trees. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. He's talking about the Dead Sea. Okay, the Dead Sea where nothing grows. It's going to become fresh when this water hits it. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there'll be very many fish. But this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea, from Engedi to Engaleum. And it will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like fish of the great sea. Now there is a good example of physical realities being given to us uh, in, in uh, spiritual realities being given to us in physical form. Okay, Verses 8 through 10 tell us that the waters of this river, this river of life, flowing from the temple, have such healing power that animals of all kinds flourish. And it even had the power to bring the Dead Sea back to life which is amazing if you think about it. Because the Dead Sea has seven times, in places even more, but in some places seven times more salt than the ocean. I was, um, one of my favorite basketball teams had the chance to, this summer to, to go to Israel. And uh, they're writing diaries and talking about what happened. And one of the places they went was the Dead Sea. And here they are, these big huge basketball players going out into the Dead Sea, and they just lay down on their back, and they can't even sink. They even try to sink, and they can't, because it just holds them up. I've been to the Great Salt Lake uh, in Utah, and it, it's pretty much like that, but not as much. Not, not as much as that. The Great Salt Lake is not all that much more salty than the ocean itself. You know? But uh, this is seven times more. You're just not going to sink, but you're also not going to live. There's nothing that can live there because of the salinity of it. But this 
river purifies it. Rivers in physical aspects are purified by water flowing into them and water flowing out of them. That's what happens. You flow in, you flow out. The Dead Sea, nothing flows out, and so evaporation is what takes place. And that's what, includes, that's what makes it more and more and more salty all the time. Okay. Tourists go to the Dead Sea. They, they want to float, they, they can't. So, you know, just that kind of thing going on. It's Old Testament picturesque language. We find abundance of food in the form of a bountiful harvest of fish. Fish as plentiful as the fish of the Mediterranean. Well, okay, that's not possible right now because nothing lives in the Dead Sea. But the purifying waters of life of the river that flow from the throne purify the Dead Sea, and now it abounds with life. And what do we say about the gospel lesson from that? Well, I imagine, you know, if you're not quite sure and you're taking it all very literally, you say, well, someday the Dead Sea is going to be a, a living sea with a bunch of fishing and all kinds of fishermen and all kinds of things happening. No, no. I think the lesson of this is the gospel brings healing. The gospel brings life. Life from the dead. And here's this picture of uh, this nothing but deadness. And now it's alive and thriving. And that's the way we ought to look at ourselves in this new covenant age. Now verse 11 seems like a strange verse. And um, I'm not even sure. There's at least two ways to interpret it. I'll, I'll give you both. Verse 11 says, But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt. Okay, well, you know, salt is necessary to life as we know it. Not too much salt, okay, but a little bit of salt. So salt's not totally removed. Uh, many scholars take it that way. Uh, others say that, uh, no, this is really just a, a vision. And so we're talking about the gospel and the gospel going forward and bringing life, but not to everyone yet. That's not till the eternal state, when everyone. And that's kind of where I lean to think that that's really probably what's being said. Um, so with New Testament eyes, we look at that and say, okay, even in the time that we're living in now, uh, certainly not everyone belongs to Christ. Not everyone can be part of the new Jerusalem. Okay. But now we come to the eternal state. And we know this by reading Revelation 22, 1 and 2. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they'll bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. And that takes us right to Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2, and exactly what the Holy Spirit was pointing John to write about. Ezekiel in a vision, writing in a very earthy way. John puts the vision squarely into the eternal state. Because remember, chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation are clearly the eternal state. Okay, so Ezekiel talks about these trees that thrive by the river of life. He uses language that reminds us of life here on earth. And the explanation is John 
seeing a vision, and his vision explains and clarifies what wasn't absolutely clear in the Old Testament. See, Messiah would come and bring in the New Covenant. And you can find the New Covenant in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, is really, really plain and clear, and even uses the term the New Covenant. Okay. And then Ezekiel has a couple of places too, talking about, I'll take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And flesh is being used in a positive way there. It's going to be a soft heart, a heart that, that, that can be changed, a heart of stone. Uh, we know it's just immovable. It stays where it is and, and uh, has no feeling, has no love. But a uh, heart of flesh uh, is the idea of what the Lord has done for us. As the Holy Spirit comes, we're regenerated, we're given a new heart, and uh, we believe, and we've been changed. We're changed. We're not the creatures we used to be. Uh, if anyone be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. Okay. So, we shouldn't be surprised that in the Old Testament, before the coming of Messiah, and the full revelation of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ as the God-man, uh, the, we shouldn't be surprised that hundreds of years before Messiah comes, the Old Testament would use Old Testament imagery to portray the great event of the eternal state. Now, getting back to the idea of, um, well, yeah, let's go back to Revelation 22, okay. Go back to Revelation 22 here at this point. Okay, so we've seen Ezekiel 47.12, which is very important. In fact, almost quoted uh, here in Revelation 22. There's no doubt this is what we're talking about here. Now look again. Uh, I saw a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God. And the Lamb, now... Okay, talked about the temple in Ezekiel. But now the throne of God and the Lamb, New Testament language that clarifies for us. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life. Which, now that's interesting. It's a vision. That's the only way you can explain this. Because how could you have a tree uh, which bore 12 fruits on either side of the river? A, a tree singular. Been a lot of explanations trying to, to say what that is. Some talk about a massive tree. It's such a huge tree that it's on both sides of the river. I, no, I don't think that's a vision, remember, like that. Probably just like you would call an oak grove, you know, a whole bunch of oaks. We can talk about the tree of life, and uh, it's been multiplied many times in this vision, is what we're talking about. In Eden, there was one, and now that it's been multiplied numerous times is probably the best thing. And it brings forth 12 fruits. What does 12 make you think of? Okay. Well, there were 12 tribes in Israel, right? And there were 12 apostles in the New Testament. And so, really, 12 takes on the significance that it's had throughout the book. A lot of times it's been 24. When, it, when the Revelation talks about 24, it's talking about the Old Testament and New Testament people of God being put together that way. But if we just talk about 12, we're talking about all of the people of God together. That's what we're doing. So we're not even making a distinction now between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant people of God. We're just talking about all of the people of God in the eternal state. You know. 
And so there won't be any second-class citizens in heaven. Oh, you, you lived in the Old Testament days. Oh, that's too bad. Too bad you couldn't know the, the great realities of the new covenant. Or vice versa. Oh, you're, you're one of those um, guys where everything just kind of changed and, and Gentiles, you know, well, well I'm, I'm Jewish, you know, and, and uh, we were the people of God and we went on for centuries as the people of God. That's not going to happen. There's equality amongst the people of God, Old Covenant and New Covenant. Okay, so we see the physical and spiritual come together. The church, and now I'm using church in the aspect of Old Testament saints and New Testament saints. The church becomes the focus of God. Okay, and uh, in this New Covenant age that we're living in, of course the church is the focus of, of, of uh, God. But the church is not a temporary institution that God is using until he can turn back Israel to himself. And that's where the big mistakes are made, I believe, in eschatology, trying to take physical, uh, take spiritual realities and to take them literally. When we get to Ezekiel's temple, I think we'll be able to prove that this is not a literal temple, but there's spiritual message there. And there'll be reasons why. I'm not gonna go into them right now. I'm not gonna go into them tonight. But there's reasons why we'll see that. And we use principles like that in interpretation. You know, Old Testament visions should not be taken as literal. They're visions. That's the whole point, is they're visions. They're visions that teach us something. They're visions that will use physical language to portray spiritual truth. And they are true indeed. So the church, Old Testament and New Testament, is in the eternal purpose of God. The promises to Israel of redemption are fulfilled in a church bigger than Israel. It includes all the elect Jews from the Old Testament times till now. All the elect Jews, a remnant from their fellow countrymen, and us as Gentiles, a remnant from all those from all over the world. That key, that term remnant, which is just vital. It really is to understand it. And if you get a chance to go in my office someday, I'll be, I'm going to give you a spoiler alert, okay? Mark Moon, one of our resident artists, we have a few artists around here, and he's one of the artists that we have. Uh, Mark Moon, um, uh, you know, picked up that idea of remnant and uh, made a painting about remnant, which is very interesting. And uh, I've only had one person be able to guess what it meant, you know, as they look at it. But once you see it, you can't unsee it. So it's one of those kind of deals, you know. So if you want to look at, at that painting that's in there, you, you're more than welcome to do so. It's by the door to the church library inside my office. Okay. So the picture we have in chapter 22 is a further elaboration of what we saw in chapter 21. Chapter 21, we saw the new earth, the new cosmos. We saw that coming down from God to earth and in the form of a city, and she's called the bride. Okay. So that's the imagery that we get there. Okay. And uh, the people of God being the building, the, the walls, and, and part of the city that way. And uh, we saw there was no physical temple in the new city, but the Lamb is the temple. 
And remember what a temple is. A temple, of course, we think temple, and, and rightly so, we think of the, the temple that Solomon built and the temple that was rebuilt. But actually, a temple is the place where God specifically meets with his people. That's what a temple is. So there is no temple in the new heavens and the new earth because God is there. You know, God is there. So there's that where God specifically meets with his people. And then um, chapter 22 ex- talks about the same new heaven and new earth, the new cosmos, and, and it focuses differently. It focuses on the Garden of Eden. We really need to be seeing Eden, and, and next week, Lord willing, we'll really be able to show that, that Edenic identity of the new heaven and why it is that way, the new heaven, new earth, the new cosmos. And uh, Eden was a temple. It was the place where Adam met with God. And um, Adam could be called the first priest before his fall and before his exile. Okay. In a state of innocency, but mutable, able to change. You know, our, our confession, we, we spent, um, uh, uh, about four of us were at the, the conference this week, and uh, they dealt with the confession of faith where it talks about uh, free will. And um, it's very interesting because man has a fourfold state. And our confession tells us this too. But you almost miss it because it's uh, paragraph one, and then paragraph two, three, four, five talk about the fourfold state. You almost wish it would go one, two, three, four, you know. But, um, you know, man in his first state was innocent. He was sinless, but he was able to sin. And Adam was that. And he was mutable. He could change. He had total free will. That's the first state that man was in. And apparently it didn't last very long. Because the next thing we find is man in a fallen state. You know, not able, not just not able to not sin. He was a sinner. He sins, you know. But then Christ comes and the new heart is given, be it Old Testament or New Testament, the new heart is given, and now man is able not to sin, but not perfectly. Okay. Yeah. But uh, that's the, what we're told. And then in the new heaven and new earth, the new cosmos, man is not able to sin. And we ought to be very, very glad about that. I mentioned it, I think, last week. But... Uh, there was uh, something as, as child, as a young man growing up, a child and a young man growing up. Um, I, I often wondered what is going to keep us from being deceived and falling like the angels, some of the angels did, and what's going to keep us from being deceived and falling like Adam did? You know, we're going to be there for all eternity, maybe a billion years from now, if you can think about years. Uh, we'll just uh, blow it, and you blow it, you blow it, it's gone, you know. <laughs> can't happen. God puts us in a state of not being able to sin. And the river that we talked about, remember that river getting deeper and deeper? It went ankle deep. I hope I read it all. 
It went ankle deep. Okay, good. Thank you, I read it all. Okay. It went ankle deep, and then it got deeper, then it got deeper, then it got deeper. Then it finally got so deep it couldn't cross it. Okay. That tells us a lot of things. One of the things it tells us is that with God, it gets better and better and better. And I don't know how it's going to happen. And I, don't, I can't understand it. You know, when I was a kid, I used to think, heaven's going to probably be like your very best day at Disneyland. <laughs> I've been to Disneyland a lot of times. And I really don't look forward to going anymore. <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you get tired of it pretty quick, you know. Okay. Well, you know, no, heaven's nothing like Disneyland. But it's better than we can even imagine. And it keeps getting better somehow. So, you know, uh, about a, a million years from now in heaven, look me up and say, Pastor Steve, you were right, or Pastor Steve, you were wrong. <laughs> you, know, you know, you could do that. I, I didn't make that up. I'm not the first one to say that, believe me. Uh, it, it, it's better and better and better. A little trickle turns into a mighty roaring river that you can't even cross. Okay. Let me, let me conclude here. Okay, so Ezekiel sees the trees of life as many trees bearing fruit all year long, growing on the banks of the river of life. We saw that. And now we see it here in the middle of its street, the water that being there. And on either side of the river was the tree of life, which, you know, I would take it as trees to, to go along with Ezekiel, but it's just a, a figure. He, wanna, he wants to point us to Eden here which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Here we see in the New Testament physical language being used for something that isn't physical. Because when we're in heaven, uh, we, we don't have months. Okay, we don't have months per se, like we do here. But, um, you know, it's just talking to us in language that we can understand and uh, we can make sense. So probably... You know, the tree of life, we know, in Eden was, was in the center of the garden. And after the fall was guarded by cherubim and a fiery sword. And then man was cut off from the tree of life. In paradise, we're welcome to the tree of life eternally, you know. And probably the change from one tree to many trees has to do with growth and multiplication. Adam was to tend the garden Part of that tending would be to expand the garden and eventually for the garden to fill the earth. It wasn't God's purpose to put Adam and Eve there. And of course, God's purpose, we now know what it was because it came to pass. But God's purpose as it apparently was, was for Adam and Eve to be in the garden and then to expand that garden. And that garden would soon cover, well, over time, cover the entire earth. That ended with his fall. God's plan to extend the earth, though it wasn't destroyed, it was just delayed. And in the eternal cosmos, the curse is removed, the waters have purified the entire earth, and we'll live in a temple garden. And the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding each month, the leaves of the tree for, for the healing of the nations. What does that mean? Well, we're in the eternal state, and while you can interpret Ezekiel as individuals being healed, John talks of the healing of the nations. And I think really what we do is we just think of, of both together. And those in Christ are no longer divided from one another, 
by nations, war, or sin. There's one king, there's one ruler, and that, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Two more places, and then we'll be done tonight. Two more places talk about um, the tree of life in the book of Revelation. I'll just read them to you. Revelation 2.7, to the church of Ephesus, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. There's the promise to the church in Ephesus. And then the promise right here in Revelation 22, verse 14, uh, blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. So there we have it all tied in together, the city and the tree of life. Twelve fruits, the number of the people of God, healing, there in the new cosmos, healing, everything's already healed, no sickness, pain, or death, and nations, all in the new cosmos, know him, no longer an enemy. You know, and there's one more scripture, and then Pastor Mike, I'll pray, and then you come. Psalm 46, verse 4, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God's in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're talking about deep things, talking about difficult things, trying to understand your way. In some ways, it's simple, Father. There's a new cosmos coming that in many ways will be like the world that we know, but in so many ways unlike the world we know because sin has touched everything in this present world. And there, there will be no sin. There'll be nothing that defiles. There'll be holy bliss with one another and you ruling as King of kings and Lord of lords, which you are today, but on that day ruling without an enemy. And the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Lord, we thank you for that. No pain, no sickness, no sorrow, no death. And for eternity, we get to live in your presence. What a great, what a great thing awaits us, Father. It's greater than we can imagine. And you give it to us in good language, Father. But we're feeble, we're finite. We just don't always get it. But Father, help us to believe by faith that you're going to do what you say and we will dwell forever in bliss that will never end and will always be increasing to your glory. And we give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.